You guys can go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> a couple years ago, Tia and I were celebrating an anniversary, and um, we determined, she determined, uh, that we were going on a cruise together. And uh, I, do I have any cruise people in the house? Yeah, yeah, some of you. It's okay. It's okay if you like cruises. Um, if you enjoy being trapped in a fishbowl like that, that is awesome for you. Um, my wife enjoys those things. And, and so she determined, and we began the process. And if you've ever tried to book a cruise, it's, it's mind-blowing how many little details you have to consider. It's like, do I want a boat that has ice skating, or do I want a boat that has water slides? Do I want a boat that has dancing, or comedians, or this kind of food, or that kind of food, this kind of length, this kind of destination? Do I want to stop at their special private island, or do I want to go to other islands where I can see different cities and cultures? And there's just like this ridiculous amount of stuff that all kind of gravitates around what you want to do on that experience. And even as we got on the boat and we began going through, the food is great. And it just, it was a strange sense and a strange feeling when you are used to being responsible for your four children and your full-time job and just the grown-up responsibilities when it was just her and I on the boat with these other people. And the only question we had to answer each day is, so what do you want to do? I mean, it was just a weird sense and a weird feeling. And I'll tell you, like, with all of the wonderful options that we spent so much time considering what we wanted to do, I think we ended up napping more than anything else. It was such, such a parent trip for us. But it, it was just, that, that was all that the boat was about. The boat was just about, okay, what do you, do you want to go um, play a sport? Do you want to go work out? Do you want to go listen to a comedian? Do you want to go play bingo? Because apparently we're 70 years old and we're playing bingo now. Um, and, and that's just what it was. And, and the trip was, was just about us. And, and it was good for us to do that. And in fact, I'd encourage you, um, I've encouraged many of you guys, you got to take those trips away with your spouse. Because it's important to have those times where you rekindle the passion, rekindle the connection, and remove all the distractions, and you really just focus on your relationship. That's great to do um, for a time. But if our entire life begins to be consumed with the just what do I want to pour myself, my, my time on myself? Like, what, what do I want to just do for me? If every single day, every single week, every single month, year upon year, our life is lived just purely with what do I want to do to entertain myself today? I'm going to tell you, you're missing out on the design for yourself because you were designed more for just enjoyment of what this world has to offer. You have purpose, you have calling, you have opportunity that you have to grab a hold of. Today, we're going to look in the Gospel of Luke chapter 16, and I'm going to just project part of the verses that I'm going to read because I'm going to break one of my preaching rules today, and I'm going to cover more scripture than what I can really dig super deep into because all of Luke's, Luke 15 is teaching into the same concept. Jesus is teaching about something, and he's just wanting to hammer it into people's heads. And, he, and as he's doing this, I want to just, first of all, give you a little interesting nugget about when you're reading Scripture, when you're reading one of the Gospels. The Gospels are the story about Jesus' life, the history of the miracles, uh, of the teachings that he gave, and it's about his life. And they were, each Gospel was actually intended we're not trying to be fancy with our lights. That is one of the school lights just dying. I'd rather just go ahead and acknowledge that and be like, our church is trying this weird strobe effect. No, um, it's dying. I apologize for that. Uh, the, the gospels, each one of them, were intended to be read in one sitting. 
And that's typically not how we read them today. We, we take them in little bite-sized chunks, and that, that's all right, but I just want you to, for your knowledge's sake, know that the way that it was written, it was intended that you would sit down and you would just read the Gospel of Matthew, or you would just read the Gospel of Luke. And so as we dive into a chapter here, and it might feel like a lot of content, really the intention and the way that it was written is that you would read the whole story in one sitting anyway. And so we're getting into this context where Jesus is teaching, and I'm going to start at chapter Um, at verse 1 and 2, and it gives us a little bit of context of the situation in which Jesus is teaching. And he says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, that's an interesting accusation that he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And the accusation is absolutely true. I mean, it's literally the evidence is right there in front of them. They're seeing it. And perspectives haven't changed that much that a lot of people's perspective of taxation is that taxation is theft. And their perspective of tax collectors was even worse because the tax collectors had a license to steal. The the accountability structure was a lot different in this point in time. And so if a tax collector looked at you and they did not like you, they would say, well, I thought your rate was going to be 15%, but it's going to be 30%. What do you mean? That's not fair. Oh, did I say 30? I meant 45. And for the Jewish people, there wasn't a system where they could really defend, where they could go to a higher level. They were just stuck paying this. I mean, things would happen with their tax collectors where they'd say, hey, you know, you're supposed to be making $175,000 this year. How is it that you've made $2 million? I mean, I'm glad that that doesn't happen with our politicians today at all, ever. Like, things have changed, Right? No, I mean, people abuse authority when given authority. It happens now, it happens then. What Scripture says is there's nothing new under the sun. And the tax collectors, they were hated because not only did they cheat people, but they would commonly be Hebrew men who were cheating their own countrymen in service to a foreign nation. They were hated. They were considered sinners. They were considered outcasts. And the religious rulers knowing not just what the tax collectors did to them, did to their people, did to their friends, did to their family. They looked at them with probably a rightful disgust. So there was tax collectors there, but there was also just known sinners. People who were violent, maybe. People who were caught in adultery. People who openly defied God. They were just given that very simple label of there were sinners that were there with Jesus. And so the Pharisees, the the teachers of the religious law, were looking at Jesus, looking at who he invited over for dinner. And I'll just pause on the concept of invited over for dinner as well, because we're like, it's just a meal. Like, what's the big deal? You showed up at Chipotle at the same time, like they're just eating together, it's fine. No, like this, this has more of the context of when you invite someone over for Thanksgiving dinner. Like culturally, to share a meal with someone, it's in our culture more like when you say, hey, you should come over and and, and join us for Christmas dinner or Christmas breakfast over at our house. There was just this sense of when you came into the house for a meal, it was a connection like family. And it was disturbing to the mind of the Pharisees and it was disturbing to the mind of the teachers of the law that Jesus would invite into his circle people who were known sinners, people who were known tax collectors. 
And as they are grumbling about this, Jesus then begins in the situation where he starts to teach. And I want to, I want to ask you to look for something as we go through some of these passages. You might want to read some of these because I'm not going to project all of them. I'm going to project a certain couple pieces of each. But you, I think you're going to want to go back to Luke chapter 15 later and study some of this uh, because it's interesting to see where you find yourself or where you find the church in these parables that Jesus uses. This chapter is known as the lost chapter. Some people, when they read this, they will identify with the person who's doing the searching. Some people will identify with the thing that is lost. And it's interesting to recognize what is my natural gravity of what I associate with. It's an interesting thing. As you look at the passage, I'm going to read starting at verse 3, but then I'm going to put verses five and six up on the screen. Starting at verse three, it says, then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully, and go and put this up on the screen. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. The lost sheep. Now, the Pharisees, they may have been a little bit cold-hearted. They might have held a grudge against people who got engaged in sin, but they were known to be good at their math. They were known to be good at their businesses that they run. They, They were people who were good down to the last detail. And so Jesus begins to use the tension of what they understand about business to teach them a spiritual principle, that every sheep matters. I had to, you know, you'll understand. Here's here's a math equation for you if you want to play with this later. Um, One sheep can produce about four to five offspring per year, all right? Best case scenario, and we'll, we'll actually, we'll minimize it. We'll say every two years, one sheep has six babies, all right? We'll go with that math. And after eight months, those sheep are ready to start creating babies, And the gestation period is five months. And so if we multiply this down the road and we go five years down the road, you can understand why I had to use an online calculator to do this. Best case scenario, we're looking at about 180 sheep five years down the road from this one that you did not lose. And especially farmers, they're not just thinking about the profit that I can turn today. They're looking down the road of what am I leaving for my kids? Every sheep right now can mean over 100 sheep five years from now, can mean over 1,000 sheep 10 years from now. And so when you lose one, you don't just say, well, I've got 99 others. It's going to be fine. It's only a 1% loss. No, they're thinking about their children. They're thinking about their children's children. They're thinking about we need to preserve every single one we have because each one makes a difference. And so they got the concept that if you lose one sheep, you go after it. And when you find it, you come back celebrating because, man, you know, a dollar saved is a dollar earned, right? Like we, we understand that when we... When we minimize loss, that we're increasing gain. And so when he's teaching this, they get it. Like, we, we have to go find the sheep. We have to go get the sheep. And they understand the celebration and the sense of joy that they have. The passage says in here, in verse 6, it says, rejoice with me, I found my sheep. Rejoice is one of these terms that 
Ah, the, the, the heart doesn't always leap off the page because we read it and we're like, okay, and rejoice with me. Like, no, it's like, like rejoice, like I found it. Like I got it. I lost it, but I have it again. Like I, it was gone, but now it's here and I have it and there's passion. And, and it's a bad thing for us when we read scripture and we read it devoid of the heart and the excitement that's there. And Jesus is drawing this contrast and he's saying, you guys are getting upset that sinners and tax collectors want to be with someone who's teaching the truth about the word of God. And that bothers you. But you place so much value on a sheep's life and what a sheep can produce and what that can mean for your wallet and your prosperity. You have passion over, you have excitement over here in the prosperity area of your life. But in the compassion for someone else area, you're angry. And the church can feel exactly what those Pharisees felt because when we think of compassion on a person that we don't know, we're like, yeah, compassion is great. Grace is awesome. What about the family member you haven't talked to for a long time? What about the friend or the coworker who criticized you and just left you cold? What about the person who has, has harmed you? Does grace go to them too? Grace is difficult. Grace is messy. And we're in a series called We Are the Church, and we have been recipients of this incredible grace that comes from God. But if someone who made a mess in your life found that grace, would you be rejoicing for them? Would you say, God, do you know what they did? Jesus, do you know who, who that is that you would, why would they think that you would forgive them? They haven't even said sorry to me. Grace, the grace that you've received, we're called to give. So Jesus began to engage in that tension where he says, okay, you guys understand prosperity, but do you understand how I see and how I value the loss? You understand your sheep, and he says, okay, and then Jesus continues on and he compares it to this, and he gets into what's known as the parable of the lost coin. And I'm going to read part of this and then we'll project verse 9. It says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp? The coin that's described in here compared to about a $100 bill. It was a day's wage, all right? So she loses about a $100 bill in her house, and does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And then put this on the screen. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. All right, in this passage, it's interesting. It reads really simply, but it reminds me a little bit of a, 
like crime documentary. It's like, okay, there, there was something in the house, but it's lost, and now we need to, we need to do a search. We, we need to light up a lamp, and we need to search every aspect, and everything else stops until this lost thing gets found. Like there's this mentality that there's a recognition that something of value is lost, and a search has to occur. That her friends and her neighbors know that she's looking, she's not doing anything else. And this is an interesting thing just of itself because it uses a woman instead of a man in this search. And if the Pharisees thought that they were in the important part of being the ones who were searching for the valuable thing, this would have been insulting to them. But this is one of the clarifying things about these passages is that the one who's searching is God. And we are the lost things. And we categorize ourselves as something better off, but I want to remind you that you were once lost, but now you are found. And you get to invite people to know this grace, but God has already been chasing after them, and he will use you as an instrument to invite them in. But even if God gives you the words and you get to pray with someone and lead them to Christ, it was God who has been searching after them. And so Jesus is teaching the Pharisees about the heart of God here, and their heart is so far away from this because their mentality is those things are lost and they have no value. Those tax collectors are lost and they have no value. Those sinners are lost and they have no value. And Jesus says, no, these lost people, they're like a coin. And it's interesting, there's good comparisons that can be made, especially as you reference against the way that Matthew, in Matthew 22, when Jesus was asked whether or not they should pay taxes to the Romans, and Jesus said, you know, well, whose image is on the coin? And they said, well, Caesar's. We'll give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God's what is God. It's because the intention was there that on the coin, there's an image of Caesar, but on you, there's the image of God. So this coin, it has an image on it. And there's interesting things that they would have naturally thought of because with these coins, they were softer metals that if they were stepped on a lot, the image would begin to get distorted a little bit. The dirt and grime would cause the metal to fade. And once it was found, it would have to be shined. It would have to be refreshed to be brought back to it to the value that it should carry. And so finding it is somewhat urgent because the longer it's there, the more damage it can be found. And there's a sense of urgency. It's just like in our life, in our community, the longer that someone is further away from God, the harder it is for them to come back. The longer that they, they allow themselves to be in places where the image of God is distorted by culture and sin and problem and addiction, the harder it is to come back to God. And so there should be a sense of urgency within the believers of Christ that says, those who are lost, they need to be found, and not later, not tomorrow, not, not next year, but today. That, that my neighbors necessitate seeing the love of Christ on display through me today. There's a sense of urgency that I can't go to bed until I've done something, till I've prayed something. Can I tell you that in, in, your, in the sense of urgency that you should have to make a difference in the lives of others, don't minimize the work of prayer. There are days where God will give you an opportunity to verbally share about the truth of the word of God with your neighbor. And there are days where the best work that you can do is to actually spend time and say, Lord, I lift up my neighbor to you. And I just ask in Jesus' name that you'd be providing for them, that you'd be protecting for them, and that when you give me an opportunity, I will hear your words and I will share with them. To pray for your neighbor is not to do do nothing, but is to set the groundwork for what God will do miraculously later.
And I hope that as a believer in Christ, you have a sense of urgency that I've got to get the light. I've got to be part of the process of what God is doing. I've got to be part of this search that's occurring where God is trying to reach them. And then Jesus describes almost from this first person perspective of like, like he's seen it before. Do you know that there's rejoicing amongst the angels in heaven in front of God at one sinner who repents? I think that the angels, they just, they don't have to see it through the eyes of faith. They, they, they just see it through sight. And so they recognize what someone is being saved of. And so I bet there is rejoicing in heaven. That if, if there's compassion there, there has to be a sense of, thank you, praise God, that another one has been saved from separation from God. They'll be here with us. There's reason to celebrate. And there's actual rejoicing. There's not just a, moving along. No, there's a sense that this, this person who has the image of God written across them, who has been far away from him for far too long, has been brought close, and now they're surrounded by the church, and now they're headed to an eternal connection. They've been adopted into the kingdom, and so we have cause to celebrate. And there's rejoicing. But remember, Jesus is teaching in the tension because the Pharisees, the religious rulers, they, they, they didn't want the other people. And so, so he, get, he hits them once, he hits them twice, and then he hits them a third time with a story that's probably pretty familiar to you. And because it's longer, I'm going to summarize some of it. But it's referred to as the parable of the lost son uh, or the parable of the prodigal son. So it, it starts off and it's, it's very simple that there was, there was a man who had wealth and he had uh, an older son and a younger son. And his younger son said to him, Father, I want my inheritance now. I don't want to wait till you're dead. I want to take it. I want my half. And he took it and he went to a, to a faraway land and he wasted it on wild living. The context is that he gambled it away, that he gave it away, that he spent it uh, on all kinds of debauchery. And he got to a point where all the money was gone and all of the friends that he had when he had the money were gone too. And he was a Hebrew boy. He found himself working amongst pigs, which is the lowest of the low. All the while, his older brother had been at home working away for his father. And the younger brother reached a point of despair where he said, you know what? Even my father's servants live better than this. And so I'm going to go home, and he kind of worked on his speech of what he would say. Um, he said, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to just tell my dad. In verse 18, um, we'll put this up on the screen. It says, this is the younger son thinking and, and saying what he's going to do. He says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, and he went to his father. And, that, and that's in verse 20, and I want to read to you. It says in verse 20, so he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So that he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. A couple contextual things that I want to make sure you understand about this parable. First of all, the son was probably right to have a plan because most fathers would, would beat their son as they came back for bringing that kind of embarrassment and that kind of waste onto their family name. Culturally, he had his mind where the culture would have reacted. But culturally, this father was something different. I... I want to make sure you get the context, and this is strange, but in the day, like, the, the men, they didn't wear, you know, tight-fitting jeans. They, they wear what you can describe as, you know, a glorious dress of kinds, all right? That's just what it is. Um, all of their habits were different, including the undergarments that they did not wear compared to what we wear. It was just, you allowed a little bit more breeze back then. So, what you did not see is you did not see men in the Eastern culture's run places often. And when they did and they had to hike up their dress, it could get undignified really quick. And so for a man to run, he was usually running from something or running to something with complete disregard for everything else that was happening. And I bring that up not because of the strangeness of it, but because as you read this passage, it communicates how wildly and passionately this father loved his son. He did not care what anyone else thought. He didn't care what they thought about how appropriate his level of affection was. It was his son who was dead, and now he's found. And so let's throw a party. Let's kill a calf. Let's put gold back on his finger. Bring him some shoes. He has nothing. Let's give him everything again. And this is the Heavenly Father's perspective of what a lost person should be treated like. And this is all in that same conversations that started with leaders, Pharisees, teachers, saying, I can't believe that Jesus is with these lost people. And Jesus begins to just say, you don't understand the heart of God. Look, we, we are the church, and I, I want to just, as I begin to move towards a close, I want to give you three very simple things, three very simple reminders about the kind of church that we're going to be. Number one, we have a love for the lost. We have a love for the lost. Why do we have a love for the lost? Because we were lost ourselves. And the only reason that we have a connection to God is because God sought after us and brought us close. And so we can't help but give away the same grace that we've received. But also everything that we read about our Heavenly Father is that He loves those who are far away in an intense and passionate way. And as soon as they're ready to come close, He has always received them with open arms. Number two, 
We seek after the lost. Luke 19.10 is one of the best, most concise descriptions of this, where Jesus had that interaction with Zacchaeus where he invited himself in to a sinner's household, and Jesus himself said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. And if Jesus felt that he needed to move towards those who are far from God, then we should not consider ourselves above it, but we should consider ourselves called to it. That we as the church, we move towards our community. We move towards those who are far away from God. And then number three, we rejoice with God over the found. As the parable of the prodigal son ends, it ends with the older brother throwing a pity party. And everyone's celebrating, and the older brother refuses to go in. He refuses to be happy. He refuses to be excited that his brother is back. And so he sits out there, and he complains to his father. He says, I've worked for you all these years, and you've never once thrown a party. And the father says, you have enjoyed all of my blessings all of your years. But we have to celebrate. Because this brother that was once dead is now alive. He was once lost. He is now found. So we have to celebrate. So we as a church, I would hope that all churches adopt this mentality, but I want to be clear that this is our heartbeat. If someone comes in here hurting, we celebrate with God that they're here because that's what God is doing. Someone has a messy story, We have a big faith in God that he can do big things in people's lives. Band, if you guys want to come out, I'm going to begin to close this up. You know, there's comparisons that can be made that churches can be like battleships or cruise ships. Um, Sometimes we can get caught into the trap of saying, we want a church that has all of the things for me and does all of the things for me rather than what are the things that I can do and what are the ways that I can serve Christ's body and the community through the church. Uh, it, it caught my attention uh, that one of the things that are happening in different places of the world, in the Netherlands particularly, uh, where they're having a refugee crisis, they've taken some cruise ships and they've reformatted them to care for refugees. And they've removed some of the luxury, they've drained the pools. Places that were once used for bingo and comic shows are now being used to to teach language so that refugees who are trying to resettle, people who are fleeing from persecution, people who are fleeing from violence, that they can learn and that they can start a new life. And the structure of the boat really hasn't changed, but the purpose of the boat is different. And there's, there's structures about the church and the structures don't really need to change, but the purpose of the people on the boat sometimes needs to, where we say, okay, this isn't just about me and what I want, but this is about, we have a job to do. We have people to take care of. We have a difference that we have to make. I have work that I have to do because there is a mission that is critical within the church because it's critical to the heart of God. And that is that lost people need to be found. Hurting people need to be healed. And I count it a great privilege that we get to be part of the work that God is doing. So as we close this today, here's the ask. 
Are you currently working to build God's kingdom? It's easy to get caught up in the, I want to increase my prosperity. I want to, you know, take care of my own house. It's easy to get caught up in those things. But are you investing yourself in God's kingdom? Are you investing yourself in the things that God cares about? And if you are, man, stay red hot passionate about that. But if you have slipped into a mode of, I'm on a cruise ship and I'm enjoying the ride while I watch the servants do all of the things for me, I want to call you back onto mission. And I want to call our hearts and our minds back to a place that when we see a lost person found, it's not just, yay. Yes, this is what we do. This is what we're about. This is what God has done for me. And I can't wait to see that joy spread to other people. Reignite your passion. Reignite your purpose. And if you need to take a step today, then take a step today and and come and pray and receive prayer. But we need to be a church. We are a church that cares for the lost. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you spoke so clearly That when someone is lost, you want them found. More than a coin that has value, more than a, a sheep that increases prosperity, but like a son who made a bad choice, that once they're ready to come back, you want us to welcome them in. And so, Father, where we have had problems extending grace to someone who has hurt us, give us a soft heart. And maybe where we have lost the understanding of how critical this mission is, would you reawaken us? Because we know that there are neighbors and there are coworkers and there are loved ones that need your hope. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?